So welcome everybody. I'm very excited to introduce you today to Tina Terry. Tina and I have not met before. This is our first meeting and I'm really excited to learn about Tina. She has been in the music business and I'm going to let you talk her talk to you about what that means and what she's specifically done. But her take on um, resilience, I would say, and adaptability I think are particularly useful for all of us who are listening in today. So, Tina, let me just pause and ask you to give us an introduction to yourself that'll help people understand where you're coming from as we go through our questions. Thank you, Sarah, for having me here. I own a booking agency that primarily books blues music and have been in the business for 26 years. I started as a person who was a publicist, a producer, a whatever anyone would pay me for. I was a huge and still am a huge live music fan, and it was trying to align my life purpose with something that I would enjoy doing my entire life. What does your day look like? Tell me a little bit about what that means now, because that's been... A long time ago, a couple of decades, right, when you started out doing that, quarter century at least. So that means you've stayed connected to what you've wanted to do. Yes. Through adaptability and desire and perseverance, I have been lucky enough to continue that path, yes. So let's kind of back up and let me ask you a question that we have been asked to ask all of our guests. Was there a time when you were presented with a challenge or some situation that you had to change um, and handle that wasn't necessarily your choice? There's two answers to that question. The first one is I was a paralegal for 18 years. And really, as I say to people, be careful what you ask for. You may get it. I had very moral issues with that job. But I was in a space where to find something else, I would have to take a tremendous pay cut and had really reached where what I was making was what I needed. Maybe two months after having these thoughts, my managing partner informed me that the firm that I came from was buying the firm I was at. And so we sat down, had the talk about left for a reason, don't really want to backtrack. So I did. I lost my job and found myself in a position where to even stay in the field I was in, I was going to have to take a pay cut. So I took that as my chance to say, I'm going into the music business. That is where my passion has always been. That's what I'm going to do. So I was lucky through a severance package to take that hurdle believe in myself and move forward. And the second answer to that is I did move forward. I was lucky enough to be hired by a company that was at that time the best in the blues business. And the gentleman passed of cancer and he gifted me the company but failed to protect me in the will. And if you research anything about the music business, This is when you will soon find out if you have truly arrived. So that hurdle put me in a space to create my own agency and hope that everything I had done for that man for 10 years was not in vain. So talk a little bit about that. This is when you'll know if you've actually arrived. What does that mean? Because it sounds like you had a plan. 
No, I didn't. No, and that okay. was the moment. That was the moment that I really, really thought I was going to walk away. Um, and I had to soul search as to whether or not this still fit my life purpose, if it was still my passion. I had a situation where a fake non-compete was created, so I had to walk away from every relationship I had. The time frame was for a year. I persevered by finding out who my true friends in the business were. They literally lifted me and put me in a space so that I could survive. When your friends surrounded you, thinking about having that support and how key that is, especially when everything's turned left on you, right? And you know that for a year, you're basically off limits. That could be really scary. How did you work through when you said you had to decide if this is where I wanted to stay and really test, were you willing to, to continue forward? How did you go through that process? Like, are you a list person? Are you a talk it out with people person? Is it just run away and hang out by yourself for a while? Kind of a combination of all of it. I was lucky enough that there was a gentleman that I had no idea that they admired my work as much as they did. And I think that they recognized I was trying to hide and they gave me the platform to talk it out. And once that door was opened, it was easier to be honest about where I was so that I wouldn't dismiss something that I would have otherwise by trying to seclude myself. So you were just out there with all of the um, change and challenge that you were going through? At that moment, it really felt more like embarrassment. It wasn't like you could post a press release, this is what happened. And I really felt the entire situation was being built on vengeance, and I don't think anybody wins in that situation. So I was okay with my being by walking away from that for maybe my own survival, but certainly my reputation. Now you've got your own agency now, which basically you had to just start. Even with all of your experience, now you're coming out as an owner, not just the doer, but the owner. What was that like for you? What did you have to learn or do that you hadn't had to do previously? I think it's still a learning process. My agency is going to be five years old in December. The agency owner is totally different than the agent. The agent is allowed a little bit of freedom when the boss isn't the guy that the artists like. You can build that barrier and actually give an artist a place to be honest about their feelings. So as the agency owner, you're not always getting the truth and you can't necessarily be that person anymore. You have to learn to define it from a relationship into finances. And that is still a role I'm working on. Is your pull to want to be the agent versus the agency owner? Always. I like people. And being the owner really is not a feeling position. It's a very money sense, black, white as the agent, it can be colorful and frilly and you can say it however you want to. So they are, they are two totally different people. I know for me, when I'm working directly with people, that is such an energizing and fun thing to do. But then you put on your business hat and it's a little different. So Tina, I wanted to ask you to talk about 
what you do. I noticed, you know, when I look at you've been doing bookings for artists, and but it also said what you do is you do bookings and education. So how did that all evolve? What was what was that about? And that's for musicians, right? Correct. The music business is changing drastically. Uh, my demographic of artists that I represent have a span of easily 25 years and more of touring. And this new age, Spotify, Amazon, YouTube, all these things have not fully filtered into the idea of business in the blues. Because it's really a small demographic, all of us in this business are fighting for the same gigs. And because there's more artists than there have ever been in the history of music, including the blues business, the competition is driving the price down. The eager young artist who hasn't accomplished things in his life is a little more negotiable. Also put them in a space to be a little more savvy to know how to market to the base that is going out and buying tickets. I find that my struggles are harder than they've ever been. So I wanted to take the wealth of knowledge and not just in touring, but the idea that some of them are master teachers and activists. They write theatrical plays and, and some of them are filmmakers. To be able to take that other side of their person and put it into an academic situation. And the idea started to find better opportunities to fill the weekdays. But it's really grown into a need and a demand that is becoming a current culture that people don't really know where to go to acquire it. American Music Educators was truly birthed to be creative with the touring process. So how does that work? If I were to be someone to experience what you do, what would, what would my interaction be with you or with your artists? How would I interface with that? Assuming I'm a musician. You know, from, from a musician's side, with American Music Educators being really new, the, the company was opened in, in June of last year. The idea was to offer them as lectures. But some are really introverted. And so you come back to this idea of being a teacher. And for some students, they're not really looking for how does that chord progression happen. They want to hear it, watch it, see it. The average musician who knows how to read music, that is becoming a thing of the past too. So they really do learn more by seeing it. And then the element of if that presenter presents it in a way that makes that person captivated, then they will go study that artist's process. They'll take it into their bedroom and watch all their YouTube videos or go sign up for their YouTube to learn their, the equipment they use. So it kind of is a clever way maybe to put them in front of people that really aren't familiar with our American music because that's what a lot of people forget. Blues music is the first noted and wholly owned American music. So in itself, it's history. So the musician, you know, most of them are awesome educators. It's just where they want to put that energy. It's very 
interesting since I've opened this division, how many artists are calling. Did I tell you I do that? Oh, did I tell you what my program is? So it's really interesting how many folks want to give back in that element. That's exciting because you touched on how like learning is changing too because of the internet and how different you can connect people differently. And in the example of music, I'm curious, do students come to the teacher? Does the teacher tour around the country? Is it all virtual? How does that, how does that happen? The idea is to get it to our virtual point. We want to do our own lecture series and part of that is going to incorporate film. And then the idea is to grow the films, whether the student could purchase it as a one-on-one or if it's done in a class and they get the download. But yeah, I do feel that all of the artists need to be touring. Even if they get an opportunity to take a class and learn how to play guitar, you have to learn how to be an entertainer to really bring the package together. So if they're not given an opportunity to see how that artist takes their art to a stage, they're never going to complete the other side of what they need to know. What is the youngest person you're working with currently? And conversely, the oldest or long, well, oldest in terms of age, but maybe even one of your oldest artists. Yeah, my youngest is a gentleman named Jason Ricci. He's 43. He is by far a savant. He plays harmonica, and he plays it like nobody else. He's very well studied. There are certainly harmonica players out there that do not appreciate his style. So he is definitely a controversy. He is totally admired by the rock scene. They're the ones who get his outside playing. And ironically... John Popper with the Blues Travelers just released an autobiography in December and there's like a section like page 20 to 21 where he's talking about how harmonica players really need to learn etiquette and he's going through this whole space of the jam and and how people do it right and how they do it wrong and then he throws in this Tourette's statement in the middle of it and says Jason Ricci is the other harmonica player and and so Jason has at a young age in the blues world really established himself as a purveyor for what he does the oldest artist you know that's a three-way tie but I'm gonna say Rick Estrin and the Nightcat I I think that's gonna be my answer Sugar Blue would be the second The original name of the band was Little Charlie and the Nightcats. They're an icon in the Sacramento, California area. And uh, Rick has always been the front guy of this project. And they have been touring for easily 40 plus years. And Charlie retired. And that was when Rick just moved his name into the marquee and has been touring as Rick Estrin for, gosh, I've been meaning to ask him that question, but I would say a good 15, 16 years. And he is what I would call, um, it's, it's West Coast Swing. It is an art in itself. It is something that average mu- musician will miss the grace of its art and therefore is not something everybody can play. As a West Coaster, I appreciate that. <laughs> You know, I think about that kind of the arc and that you've been able to recognize the changes in the industry. And instead of saying, well, 
it's different now. I can't find a place to fit. You adapted and you looked for what's another way to help musicians to be successful and, and continue your business by, you know, starting another division and all of that. What spurs you to do those things? Is there a key life philosophy that you have about just pushing on or is that just stubbornness on your part? I am definitely stubborn, no doubt about that. I just have a great passion. I believe that talent is given to you by God. It's not something that you can cultivate. If you have it in you, it doesn't mean that that you won't practice to find it. But if you don't have it, there is no practice that's going to give it to you. And I have this great passion for this person that has this talent and really needs a team of people to make it work for them. And I have no talent. And I've always been behind the scenes in the business side. And so I really did step into this because I listened to my musician friends talk about how badly they were treated or the circumstance that hurt their feelings that I feel I stepped into this to defend that. It later became a desire to really like the puzzle. It was like algebra all over again, but with tours you know, how to get from one location to the other, yet satisfy the money, not upset the artist with the idea that it's a lower, you know, that's not the venue I want to be in. And really recognizing that there's a hundred facets to get one thing done. And your job is to rise above to do right by your artist. And even if you fail, they will tell you. <laughs> but the end result is just putting that puzzle together, it's so, it, it's like every day you, you battling all these hurdles and knocking down these walls, no matter how much you know what you do. And I like that. I like that every day is a new day. I like that you like that because there's a couple other people in my life who are like that. And I thank God for them. Right. Because, right. <laughs> well, because there's something about taking a challenge of all those moving parts and going, let's figure it out. And actually having that be an energizing challenge for you. So I admire that in you, I guess, is what I'm saying. So what are the, your success habits that let you do that and maintain, you know, your, just your sense of self? Because I imagine you're dealing with, you're dealing with people who have, they're attached to their art. And so there can be big egos involved. I'm just assuming based on what I know from other areas of work. What are some of the success habits you have or practices that has let you be successful all this quarter century? I think you have to really remember that each one is an individual. If they ask, answer. If they don't ask, don't tell. And you have to remember that even if they ask, you have to know the individual. The ego, obviously the reason they could not do what they do if they didn't have one but I find that most musicians, the ego comes to be because they're truly sensitive people. And so you do. You have to remind yourself that you have to rise above in the hopes they never ask. Because if they're asking, that means that you're not delivering. So that's the challenge. The challenge of reminding them that you're here because you think they're great. And then when they're feeling like they're not and they feel like you're the reason how to not take that personally 
and bring it to the reality of the moment, whether it's a cultural climate or something they said in social networking or a reaction out the door after a performance. So how did you learn those things to not take it personal? I think that that lesson really didn't come until I became the agency owner. Without all the other weights on my plate, the success is the dedication to the time. And I really believe that if you dedicate your time, you will always get results. They may not come instantaneously, but they will eventually come. As the agency owner, I have all this other stuff on my plate that takes away from that time. And so it's learning that they're right in some moments because now I need to learn how to rearrange my time so that isn't affecting things or or accepting that they want my role to change because I am the agency owner. And I always thought I could just keep being me because that's what they wanted me to do. But they do. They want me to rise into that cause as the agency owner because they wouldn't be here if they didn't believe in me. It's a growth thing, right, to learn to be able to transition. A couple of last questions I wanted to ask you. Are you someone who reads or gets inspiration from other people reading books, obviously music, but is there something that you turn to like when you're just wiped out from taking care of everybody else? I have become a big YouTuber and I find whatever that is at that moment on my brain, I have some people I follow and I'm not sure that really in the end it's... um that their advice fits what I do, but it's extremely motivating. And one of those guys is, is a gentleman, Patrick Bet David. He is a millionaire in the insurance business, and he does these great podcasts with other very successful people in, in various businesses. He drills the discipline, you know, because I'm not sure music has been my life for so long that it's my life. And in order to take care of them, I have to take care of me. And learning that art of what you do outside of your passion. And he's really awesome at zoning in on that. You know, when to stop and spend time with the family, when to walk away and go on vacation. And so I watch a lot of people that really drill these ideas of how to, as they call it, quote unquote, the life you want to live. And so, yeah, learning how, even though music's my passion, it's now my business and how to separate the two, but not lose that passion to want to go see a concert or buy a new CD. And that's my new challenge. Ever learning yourself, that's your own educational journey that you're on as well. I do want to ask you, if you were to think of yourself as a 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old, and now you know all the stuff you know from having gone through changing careers, having things not go the way that they might have gone, um, and then turning out even differently, what advice would you give young Tina about life in general? Oh, the first one would be to stash cash, to truly recognize if you want the life you want to live, the only way to make that easier is, is to remind yourself you have to stash cash. 
and not necessarily per se for the purpose of retirement, but just for the purpose of all that I've been through, it would have been a whole lot easier if I just stashed some cash. Um, I think the other one is, is really, 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 really getting in control the idea of a personal and professional balance. I really believe that your professional growth comes because you take care of you. And I've heard that my whole life and I never understood what it meant. And I'm not totally sure I still do. There is so much truth in that. And so learning to have that professional and personal balance is where I would have started if somebody had explained it to me. I had someone explain to me once that balance is not a static place, right? You get there, but then you have to keep rebalancing because things change. And they said, think about a ballet dancer. They might look like they're balanced, but the whole time is they're just rebalancing so they can be upright. And so when you talk about really balancing the personal and the professional and understanding when to leave one thing into the next, that's very powerful. So Tina, if people want to find out how to connect with you and learn more about what you're doing, whether they're musicians or someone who just wants to learn and learn from one of your artists, what's the best way for them to reach you? Definitely through the website, tinaterryagency.com, T-I-N-A-T-E-R-R-Y. There is my email there, and they are welcome to reach out. Ironically, I am in the process of putting together a YouTube channel, and so hopefully soon they will be able to follow and connect. Well, I'm going to leave you with one last question. What's the best piece of advice you were ever given? Listen and then speak, and when you speak, be very specific in the details. Powerful advice. So that's it for this week's episode. If you liked what you heard, please hop on over to iTunes or wherever else you listen to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. This helps us get the word out to more people just like you who want to live a no-labels, no-limits life. Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.